Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Today, Dr. Jason Roundtree joins Monty as they have a great discussion about Jason's research that focuses on identifying the metrics and management that reflect ecological improvement in grazing land and other agricultural systems. And just like many of our guests, he had a moment where his paradigm shifted, and it came in the form of a series of hurricanes. And that got him thinking about resilience and what does it mean to look at resilience in agriculture. Jason is also the co-director of the Center for Regenerative Agriculture at Michigan State University. Such a great conversation. So let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm blessed to be joined by Dr. Jason Roundtree. Welcome, Jason. How are you today? Hey, good. Doing well. Good to see you. So we were talking a little bit earlier. I asked him what he's been up to and he said, oh, just measuring things. So <laughs> but awesome. that's all you do, right? Just measure stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell I don't us- know if it means anything, dude, but you know, we, <laughs> we do measure a hell of a lot of things. So hopefully one day it'll work. And maybe, you know. <laughs> well, tell us your story, Jason. Uh, we've known each other for a while and, and have met each yeah. other through the grass fed community. But um, for all of our listeners, just kind of give us your story, your background, and, and uh, where you came from and, and how you got to where you are. You bet. Well, um, you know, currently, Monty, I've been here 15 plus years at Michigan State. My second tour, I I did my PhD here um, early 2000s and left. And uh, I've been uh, working here at Lake City Research Center primarily, which is about 600 acres of grass, a few hours north of Lansing. So right on, almost right on the 45th parallel, uh, we run about 100 and Oh, 50, 160 cow-calf pairs, uh, Red Angus cattle at that site. Uh, but to work backwards, um, I, I left here with my PhD in 03 and um, grew up showing livestock. I grew up, you know, really oriented to purebred communities. I enjoyed a lot of of uh, show, showing. We, you know, judged a lot of different cattle shows over the years. I haven't judged probably one in 15, 20 years now, but, but kind of came through that angle, right? And um, left Michigan, and uh, my first job was at Louisiana State down in Baton Rouge, which I grew up in East Texas, so it pretty close to home and where my wife's family's from. And so I was down there and just doing the regular thing. Um, you know, we doing supplementation trials with with uh, Brahmin influenced cattle, and uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Wendell Berry, and Wendell says that. Um, he said, you know, land grant institutions are like airports. Once you've been to one, you've been to them all. And so I, I hate, I don't want to be critical. And I, I love Michigan state. I don't feel like we're that way, but point being is I was probably following the herd research wise, right. Doing what everybody else is doing. And, and that all, that all hit the fan. Uh, Cause in 05, we got hit by Katrina and Rita, two massive hurricanes that, that really impacted the state of Louisiana. Um, Later, Ike and Gustav, which got a lot of Texas too, and 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 over that 
that period of time, I, my job changed, man. I, I was no longer doing applied research. I was looking at rescue and recovery and how to treat cattle that are drinking too much salt water. And, uh, you know, and I vividly remember being South of New Orleans and I've said this story before, but, um, man, it was tore up 25 plus foot of storm surge. And I just remember thinking that, man, they're in the hell of a lot to eat. There, there's a lot of great commodity agriculture, which we of course need. I mean, we need commodity agriculture, but I, I kind of started thinking local regional and thinking, wow, well, how, you know, in, in the light of, of some issues, how are we going to feed more localized communities if trucking stops or refrigeration stops? And I, I you know, those are kind of some deep, dark questions none of us can answer. But point being is I started thinking about resilience. And what does it mean to, to look at resilience in ag? And I think I was calling it low input. I was real interested in what Kit Farrow was talking about in, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and I started thinking about it as low input. But at any rate, survived Louisiana a few more years, loved it, came up here. And I've been doing that kind of work ever since in beef systems. Say, hey, what does it look like if we take nitrogen out? What does it look like if we try to graze longer? You know, those kind of things. Well, that's uh, that's interesting because uh, that doesn't sell more stuff, Jason. Don't you know that's how research grants are made? Is if you if you uh, prove a product sells more stuff, then you get more funding for the next research product project. Yeah, I you know I. Um, but yeah, that's how how and I never look. People have got it. I mean, I I've got. I probably got seven, eight people I work to pay here, right? And so I, I understand the needs to help others make their ends meet. I, you know, so it, it gets complicated though, for sure, Monty. It does. It it does. So that was a that was a real moment when you're going from how do we we do a few supplements, make things tweak it a little bit better, and such to such the devastation and and uh, I never thought about that. How do you how do you take care of cattle that are drinking too much salt water? good point and and just nothing to eat that's uh that was quite a quite a pivotal moment so talk to us about michigan state and, uh, and the research center farm that you're at there and, you and bet. that works it's really i think it's a pretty unique opportunity and and what you get to work with there oh uh, thank you um so in 09 i came here and i uh had this you know opportunity to work at this research site um and I effectively, the site, uh, you know, one of my heroes, like Dr. Harlan Ritchie, anybody in the cattle industry that's probably over the age of, of 40 probably knows Dr. Ritchie and, and, um, but, but icon. And, and he actually oversaw that, that site for a lot of years. And in the early eighties brought in flat V cattle and did some of the very first crossbreeding work. Uh, using flat V's on oh, these old, um, really super moderate, like line one Hereford cows that probably weighed eight, 900 pounds. And so that was in the early 80s. And, and Dr. Ritchie got bigger and bigger and more global. And he didn't have as much time for local work. And so, um, you know, uh, Dr. David Hawkins, who's another icon, uh, just honored by the American Hereford Association this year for his career, uh, started doing work there and, and they started looking at the impacts of EPDs on, hey, do they work or not? So that the cow herd kind of got crossed and crossed and they were AI and either high milk. 
or high yearling or low milk or low yearling weight EPD sires in the Angus breed. And then after that, they crisscross mated those cows to high growth, high yearling, high productivity, semi-Angus bulls. So here I come in, I want to be low input and resilient and save the world. And I've got some really big cows, man. And that's not bad. Look, I don't want to be critical of that. Um, but it was a lot different. So we um, used a lot of fertilizer at that site, um, cut a lot of hay off that place, had very little infrastructure for uh, subdividing pastures and water. And we thank the Lord, our manager, Doug Carmichael, at the time. I came in with this pitch of the young academic, we're going to change all this stuff overnight, right? I didn't know what in the hell I was doing, but we did it. So we we put in yards and yards of water lines, interior fencing. We um, I sold my cows, bought uh, 10% of Five Bills Red Angus cow herd out in 2010. Super moderate set of cows. We had cows pushing a ton in that group that, that we sold. And um, I measured a lot. And so I've had this cow herd since 2010. My average uh, five-year-old cow is going to weigh 1,200 pounds at a body condition score five at weaning. But that, you know, but, so we took four or 500 pounds off the cow herd, mature size. Uh, we eliminated in, um, we eliminated fertilizer other than when we might need lime. We, we still limed here and there. And then we just started measuring everything. I, I went in in, in the early uh, in 2012 and took a lot of soil cores. I've been following soil carbon over a long period of time now. Longer I do it, the less I know about soil carbon. And and so we've um, done a lot of grass finishing over the years. That's how we met potentially. Um, not as much anymore um, here lately because I've been doing so much work on methane, nitrous oxide, beef cattle carbon footprinting. And what that looks like for cow-calf systems. So we've, we've pivoted into a lot of that right now. I've got another site I manage up in the UP. I, I work, I shouldn't say manage anymore, used to, where we do a lot of grass finishing still, um, beef, you know, phytonutrient work. Um, we can maybe talk about that later. So that's kind of what we do now. Um, we've been doing that work now for, like I said, I got here in 09. We started in 10, so it's almost 2024. Well, you got it all figured out now, don't you, Jason? Longer I live, less I know for sure, man. Yeah, it uh, nothing's easy, you know. And and you give like, you just give honor to the complexity of the creation, and realize that none of this is easy, and it changes, and 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 it's such a frustration when you see these global climate models, for example, that atmospherically look at at what's happening, but but they're only top down. They don't ever feed from the ground up. And, and I believe in that ground up approach. We got to meet in the middle. I work with some awesome people that are top down, but I, I care about what's happening on an acre of ground and what can I do with a, a livestock or a crop producer to say, hey, how do we make this better? That's a great point. Now, uh, you mentioned it a little bit earlier about soil carbon and, and the flux and what's going on, and, and you brought it sure. up again. So I think that's really worth it. And so we got we got a lot of row crop guys listening to this podcast and they're thinking now wait a minute what we're talking all about cows what what difference does this yeah. make to me so we're going to talk we're going to dive into soil carbon a little bit and the work you've done on that just to try to understand okay. what's happening um 
you know, right now in the marketplace, if you go out and you plant a cover crop, depending on where you live, you can get anywhere from five to $50 an acre. If you, if you go out and you no-till for the first time, mm -hmm. you can maybe get 10 to $30 an acre. If you reduce your nitrogen, you can get, you know, paid anywhere from 10 to 30 bucks an acre. And it's because, well, those are things you can do. Check the box, uh, got a payment, uh, and then mm -hmm. the companies that are supplying this, like, well, I paid my indulgences, right? I, I'm emitting carbon over here, but look at me. I, I bought my uh, carbon indulgence somewhere else. Check the box. Everything's great. Moving on. Um, it's not that simple, is it, Jason? No, sir. Um, if it is. With our oh, center and the center. Oh, go ahead, brother. I'm sorry, but talk about that, that complexity. But then also, if the, when that complexity gets to be known, how do we encourage the right things in the future or put that money toward those right things in the future to accomplish yeah. those goals we need to accomplish? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a tough one. So I have a saying that and it, it, it involves around, first of all, what is regenerative ag? And my goodness, I, I listen to the farm channel on Sirius XM and, you know, they're, Oh, the, you know, you get so many opinions, right? There's some dudes on the other morning that were just saying this regenerative deal is BS and we're already regenerative or sustainable. So you get that, right? And and I get it. Um, you, you get others that are saying, hey, this is it. This is the future. Okay. Um, and and so there's this broad category, categorization of it. For me, it's about ad about adopting soil health principles that are improving resilience and ecological function and that they're quantifiable. And then we are led by those principles and driven to outcomes, not check the box actions. And what are the outcomes? Well, they're improved productivity. They are improved water infiltration, improved organic matter, potentially carbon, biodiversity, et cetera. And, and then the, the the, the 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 dirty work and the tough work is ascribing quantifiable metrics to those outcomes and being able to mark that and, and then attach that through the supply chain right and and do it in a way where 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 it's transparent uh, but most importantly to me do it in a way where the farmer gets the credit right where the farmer is being rewarded for improved outcomes and not multiple people with their hands in the cookie jar all up and down there not not to blame or, or anything right but i i, I want to see farmers and ranchers rewarded for for better outcomes and so um the the challenges are how do you how do you do something like what i do and i measure i measure ground man i we've got multiple big projects i can share but we measure land but then how do you take what you measure on a on a on a field in a farm in a water district in a county and scale that up to millions of acres how, how do you how do you inform Cargill's supply chain or JBS's supply chain right so you've got these really antagonistic challenges that you and I probably Monty care about looking at ground at our own place and seeing how our actions create these outcomes but when you've got to inform a supply chain that's making a commitment to a lowered reduction, holy cow, that's a whole different can 
of worms or whatever, right? It's a whole different thing. So what I would like to say is that um, th there was a, a recent report that, that, it, that came out by a group called FAIR. And um, they actually, it's, it's an NGO. I'm pretty sure they don't want us to eat much meat anymore, but I'm not going to go down that road today. But, but they, they did um, do quite a bit of um, surveying. And they basically surveyed like I want to say it was close to 80 entities worth three trillion in the food industry. And effectively, um, of those, like 15 to 20 of them had made um like, hey, we're regenerative agriculture's in our and maybe it was even higher. I, I could I guess I can look the, the numbers up here, but um, but what I want to say is that a lot there's it was more than 15 actually there's a lot of folks that are saying hey we're looking for generative deal but by the time you whittled it down to who was actually paying a farmer to do it it was like four so you started with like 79 that they're looking at that are all bigger players and actually those that are paying a farmer to do something it was four um and and so the the thing is is 50 out of the 79 have regenerative ag in their disclosures now um, 18 of those 50 are trying to quantify it in their supply chain. Eight of those 50 have discussed how to measure it. And of those 50, only four are actually thinking it paid a farmer, right? So I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm BSing too long here. But, but the point I want to make is that, look, entities are talking about it. Companies are making commitments. Um, how we get there and how we, we show transparently and keep the attorneys at bay is a whole different deal. And, and so at one part, we've got the farmer, resilience, improved outcomes, more profitability, less inputs, all those wonderful things. Simultaneously, how does a huge supply chain quantifiably and transparently show what, what their emission reductions are? And that's kind of where we are today. So then you've got all these third parties entering in the party, like, hey, we're here to measure your stuff and we're going to pay you. We want you to sign a contract and do those things too. And then it just like, I think you probably heard it, but the carbon deal can be like the wild west without a share. That's a good way to put it. It definitely is a wild, it's a, it's a carbon rush right now and a modern gold rush. And especially with yeah. the inflation reduction act that has thrown some gasoline on the, on the fire. So, um, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the research that, you, that you've done in the past, plus your new emphasis on, uh, you know, uh, cattle impact on greenhouse gas emissions yeah. and those kind of things that you're doing today to try to provide that uh, direction and modeling and, and what is going on sure. for producers. Yeah. So um, this all started, I, I actually worked a lot. I, I haven't in the, in the near group, but I, I started working a lot with the Sayre Institute. And and understanding how do we like you know more aptly measure and monitor on rangelands and grasslands, which we don't have a, a lot of those in Michigan, but um, but but we started trying to capture how how does a farmer rancher look at their ground and or, or look at their management and say, man, how do I improve the functionality of the landscape? And you know we talk about the four ecosystem processes, right? Like you know water, energy minerals, biodiversity, or community dynamics. Again, all framed up with context. Um, and, you know, and so 
I started like, I spent like several years. My wife said I was gone for like three or four years. I, you know, sorry, honey. And, and cause I, I went all over the world doing that and, and, and teaching and measuring it. And I just remember, dude, I was sitting under a, a tree in Africa and watching these poor souls trying to take some carbon samples like manually. And I'm like, man, this ain't never going to work. Right. Like, you know, here you are in the middle of Africa trying to pound a soil core in the ground with a mallet because you don't have the technology. And, and so I just started, you know, trying to think, dude, how do you get this to huge scale? And now the things we do with EOV and all these measuring is great to inform. If a brand wants to say, hey, we're all into this and we're going to pay money for a farmer ranchers product, I'm all there. But my passion has been to understand, like, what's happening with the carbon balance and water balance of the system, right? Like, are we building? Are we emitting? You know, what's happening? And so from there, I kind of spun out of that kind of more qualitative approach and have really tried to work on quantifying metrics in grazing land systems. Working more on cropland, cropland's a lot easier than grasslands because there's less, like, complexity and, you know, with divert biodiversity, et cetera. Like, like a, a bean field or a corn field is a lot easier than a C4, C3, warm season, cool season, mixed, mixed pasture, for example. So I, I, because of the pandemic, I started like really spent a lot of time on that. I worked with others. This is not all like my brain. It's like an additive accumulation of, of learned things from colleagues over the years. And um, put together a, a project with um, Noble Research Institute, NRI. Um, and and um, we put a, a $19 million project together uh, that was funded by Noble and the Foundation of Future Ag Research, FFAR, uh, ButcherBox, um, Green Acres Foundation, others. And what does it look like if we throw all these more quantitative, technologically advanced opportunities of measuring ecosystem function at a ranch? And what does it look like to be on 60 sites in Wyoming, Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, upper Midwest, where we are in Michigan? And then and then, you know, looking at how ranchers manage the differences in that context, I'm not calling it any word. I'm not calling it regenerative or holistic or anything. I'm just looking at how they manage with their stock densities, their stocking rates, their grazing recovery periods, and then scaling all of these really great on-ground metrics, but also working with USDA remote sensing and other modelers that can then take what's happening with either imaging or measuring evapotranspiration through sensors and other opportunities from the space station, and then bringing all that together in the middle that can still inform a rancher on what's going on, but also is it a much bigger scale that can begin to more aptly fulfill and, and inform supply chains on what's happening with carbon and water and productivity. That's what we've been working on. We've been, we're in our third year. Uh, We've, I've got a, a team of 45 to 50 individuals that are doing the science that, that I work with. Um, and, and we're all over the nation doing this stuff now. We're getting some amazing data in real-time CO2 flux that just fires me up, man. And, and so I, I get fired up about the kind of data we're putting together. We're also doing a lot of soil carbon with our colleagues at Colorado State. We've got a lot of universities, Texas A&M, Oregon State. Noble. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting some. I apologize, but but it's a big project. 
The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. That is awesome. So you're pretty excited. Can you share anything? And I realize it'll be preliminary. It's not reviewed. Yeah. And those kind of things. But uh, man, Jason, don't hold out on us. What are you, what are you seeing? No, I, I really know, interesting. I, um, so, you know, I can, what I can do, first of all, right, is like say that, let me go back to uh, 2012, okay? Um, we went in and took a, a pretty significant set of soil cores down to 30 centimeters because that's what everybody does. Um, man, we see all those great, beautiful pictures of warm seasons going down like 12 feet in the ground, and we're going in, you know, 18 inches or something, right? Or not, or not, not even, right? Like, like, you know, 8, 10 inches, okay? Um, and uh, yeah, maybe, maybe foot and a half. But point being is that we're only going 30 centimeters, okay? Uh, blanket, you know, measure across the farm. Um, don't use soil textures to covariate, like sand, like the amount of sand, silt, and clay in the sample, which is hugely important, carbon. I have data, though, now. Um, and, you know, because I didn't know what I was doing, man. I'm a cow guy trying to do some soil carbon, you know, with without a lot of help. And I didn't, and I didn't so, know the somebody right Somebody let you out of your pasture instead of out of your silo and they let you out of your pasture, see? Yeah, I got a little over my skis, bro. And so, um, so we, uh, we started, you know, we came in five years later. I hired a, a really good soil scientist as a postdoc. We go in, do a lot of coring then. Start measuring greenhouse gas footprints with all the cattle and I did it on a grain versus grass, which I, in retrospectively, I'm not sure I should have done it that way because it kind of, you know, I, I don't like all that. I don't like all the grass versus grain. We do grass and grain research, asterisk, okay. Um, and, but lo and behold, you know, when we went in, man, it looked like we built some carbon, okay. Hey, I changed all these practices, right? Like we quit fertilizing. We started grazing to recovery versus just grazing in a, kind of a 30-day rest rotation, if you will. Um, and so then, you know, we kind of show that, hey, this grass fuel in this context actually looks pretty pretty good, man. Like, um, I don't have the cow in the equation, by the way, which is important. And, but we also understood through that work is that there's a reason we have corn and energy. Right. That basically for what I could do in a grass fed system, it would take half the land in a grain fed model in the upper Midwest. Right. So so there's reasons why we do things to feed people. OK, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. And and um, and so I learned that. Right. Um, it would take more cows, which for me aren't a bad thing for my friends at the U.N. meeting in Dubai next week. It's a bad thing, probably. But for me, it's a good thing. But ultimately, um, kind of put that one on hold. And so now we're in, that was in like, we did that work in like 16. Okay, now we're seven years down the road. 
go in and get much better at soil carbon now, right? Like I'm going down a meter deep, we're taking more cores, we're doing all that awesome stuff. Um, and so then you start thinking, well, shit, can I still compare this back to what I started with in 2010? Because we've gotten, you know, there's all these problems that, that start entering in the equation because you get better at something. And then, okay, is it still comparable? Um, so basically what we're finding, it's not published, but it still looks like from that 16 to 23, we're doing 0 0.7, 0 0.8 tons, I'm guessing, somewhere in there um, per hectare per year of carbon. Um, and so we're just kind of going through those numbers and what that looks like on offsetting beef footprints, right? Point being is that worst case scenario, we can offset a lot of that by incorporating carbon into the into the metrics. Um, what what looks like a really good sweet spot is managing adaptively on the calf calf side and, and doing a very good job there. Farming with covers and no till. Data says I get 0.2 to 0.4 tons of carbon per acre per hectare, I should say on using no-till and covers stacked on top of each other. And then using technologies and the appropriate approaches in the feed yard to get the most out of those cattle as they're growing. And you start stacking all that up together, Monty, and you get some pretty good outcomes that can hopefully offset a lot of that footprint. And, and so that's kind of where we've been on that. Um, the, the other thing I wanna say is that in that framework of measuring, that when we went and compared our work on adaptive grazing to continuous or kind of what's been in the literature on maybe a 30-day rest rotation recovery type thing, which really at the end of the day is overgrazing, um, we found that our approach, uh, we, we improved finishing times by 40%. We reduced emissions by 40% by managing adaptively and and all i'm saying in that context is we were our grazing recovery periods were 60 to 90 days we went from very, very low densities to much higher densities uh normally on average we move once a day with those cattle we don't hell i've been out there and made poor students move them eight times a day just to see what happens and i you know that's punishment frankly and 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 once a day works so we've got some really good data that we're building that says hey we need to nuance our discussion about beef cattle, all right? Yeah, there are situations where cattle are mismanaged and they're causing very negative ecological impacts on a global state, on a, on a global perspective. I've seen it. But simultaneously, if we employ proper management um, and, we, and we do the things correctly and we think about this in terms of incorporating carbon into the overall greenhouse gas discussion, the numbers can change. I'm not going to say they'll be negative. I'm not going to make that statement, but they can be significantly lower than what they are. And then imparting beef nutrition and density of that product on top of it, to me, it's a pretty good solution. Okay, so lots to unpack there, and I appreciate you sharing all that. But when, I, when I'm thinking about it, you really said there, there's three, three portions of that cow's life cycle, right, that you're, that you're looking at. One, yeah. the cow-calf management. So today, the management is mm -hmm. let them go. And we'll go find them in a few months or maybe once a year, <laughs> round them up yeah. off of thousands of acres, bring them in, you know, wean them 
um, work them, those kind of things. So going to managed grazing with the cow-calf herd, you know, without corn input or out, you know, so low input, good management, good rest times, mm-hmm. that has a that has an opportunity to significantly improve the carbon footprint associated with raising beef, correct? Then the second absolutely that you said, and you didn't spend a lot of time on it, but you just said, hey, we realized that we could, you know, you said, uh, I think 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 hectare per year, you know, uh, change in these footprints and 0. 0.2 to 0. 0.4 of that came from getting the forages we're going to use in the feedlot from a no-till cover crop raising context. Mm-hmm. Almost half of that. Actually, that would be added. It would be oh, added. In addition to it. Okay. So. It, it would. Yeah. You could do 50% gooder <laughs> than, than the adaptive grazing. Always gooder. Yeah. yeah, by making sure that we're doing no-till cover crop, low-input type forage production on the crop side, correct? on the crop, on the crop side, side that goes to the feedlot. Um, now, yeah. in the feedlot, yeah, exactly. To me, it seems like feedlots are pretty fine-tuned, but maybe I, I don't understand that industry as much because I'm a grass finished producer. Um, how much mm-hmm. of an opportunity for gain is there within the feedlot production model? Seventy to eighty percent of the emission footprints coming from the cow calf. Okay, so you've got that number. Um, there you go. Much greater opportunities in our grazing land systems. Yeah. Uh, there, there are, however, opportunities without question on uh, methane reduction, whether it be enterically through the you know additional supplements, things you might be reading about. Yeah. Um, manure methane can be a, an issue also, right? And so you how how that manure is treated mm-hmm. can can have a, a like a, a pretty large gradient of what kind of methane's being emitted on the on the back end um and so that you know uh, obviously like up in the midwest we're seeing a lot more digesters for example coming in for dairies things right. like that 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 can lower that that captures that energy um so so yeah i mean but at the end of the day, the the, the low hanging fruit, if he's 70, 80 percent in the cow calf, man, that's absolutely. I mean, a lot and, of, and of that is happening in of the with, with the digesters, like you're yeah. saying, composting and, and manure management and those kind of yeah. things. But yeah, the, the low hanging fruit is in the cow calf production. Huh. And, yeah. And so it, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's the opportunities are there and it, uh, you know, how you measure it, how you report on it. Um, I'll always just, I'm always thinking, okay, what would a lawyer say, right? And, and in terms of how you inform and, and do those things. And, and so um, there, there are opportunities there, you know, and, and I, I look at this as a, and, and, and not an either, or, and, and so money, like these concepts, everybody's on a gradient, right? I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, look, dude, a field isn't a field, man. So, you can, you can, my, my colleague, Bruno Basso here, I work with a lot, really, he's just globally known in terms of modeling crop systems. And you can look at his, he, he creates these digital twins, these digital images that are dimensional on yield stability on a, on a grain field, on a crop field. And you can, you can look at a crop field and realize through his work that, Hey, 30, 40% of that crop of that field, it's stable. And you know what? It can probably take continuous till. It, it, it's not, you're not going to lose that carbon very, it's going to be really tough to lose that. Okay. 
However, there might be 20 or 30% of that field that has very low yield stability, that the nitrogen you're putting out is not effective nitrogen. Um, you might you might have ineffective phosphorus. You might not be infiltrating that water. It's running off. And it might be a much better way of thinking about it, like just ecologically and not practically, unfortunately. You know, what does it look like if I if I do get a buffer or cover or other tools in the toolbox on that land? And so so what I want to say is two things. Number one, no field or pasture is the same. There's huge amount of, of complexity on a field basis. So we need to nuance that, right? That, oh, just throwing certain actions at it may or, you know, it, it's not as cut and dry. Number two, people are on a gradient socially. So, you know, everybody's on this gradient of where you are from thinking more in, in a business as usual to early adopters that are just doing crazy stuff, right? And and understand that regenerative ag, or, or how you want to call it, is not binary. It's not red and blue, or it, it's we're all on a gradient. So if I can work with somebody in a huge supply chain and they just get no-till in, for example, on the right kind of acres, man, that gets the whole system a lot further down than maybe just people that have 50 or 100 or 200 acres that are stacking a lot of these principles on top of each other because they have a different model. And so I, I also have a saying led you know driven by principle you know and, and led to outcome but no farmer farmer left behind in this discussion we don't want to put a bean farmer versus a corn you know i don't i don't want to go there dude I, we have the have those convos and they're just not good man so any any opportunity for anybody to adopt these principles i think are out there what we need to see happen is we need the market to signal it man to say that hey we are going to truly pay for this. And when that occurs, farmers will change. When a neighbor sees another neighbor getting 50 more cents a bushel, or if a neighbor sees a feeder calf getting $100 more ahead than the other one, people pay attention. But all these promises on carbon and, oh, well, you know, in five years, we're, you know, blah, 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 it'll be better and you'll get paid. Farmers don't react to that, man. They react to what's happening in the real time how they're going to get paid. And so to me, you know, we got to be realistic. I like that. No farmer left behind. And uh, then the other yeah. thing is, is your, your whole concept of, you know, the Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Right. And uh, I'd like yeah. to see how, how many, how many farm employees would work for five years before they would uh, take a paycheck and stick with you. Right. It's the same concept. <laughs> so we need to we need to make Dude. that real money and and right now right. and that that's a that's a and, great and don't blame the farmers right that's the other thing oh. oh well you know if this farmer would get their act together that's a bunch of crap too man and and, and it's just that you know and I talked to I talked to people, why aren't they all doing this stuff well you know if that's the right way why aren't they doing it and you know it it, it isn't because they vote Republican okay it's the fact that you have to pay them to do it. And and they have to be monetized and see that, well, and we have to quantify it. We are that's paid, where we're at. We are paid to do it the way that we're doing it today, right? right. So if you want us yeah. to do something different, than I'm the paid way to show up to work. Today, you know, pay us mm -hmm. something different, and and it'll it'll right. all work out. All right, uh, we're going to shift gears here. I hope I think we can do it. Going to have all right, to, dude. Going to have to double clutch. Nutrient density research. This is where you and I 
bumped into each other and uh, early on what you were doing there at Grassfed Exchange. Um, I want you to throw out a little bit about Grassfed Exchange, what that's all about, and kind of how that got you into the the nutrient research, nutrient density research, because there's there's really two lanes here, right, in food production. One is long-term environmental impact, sustainability, resiliency, which we've been talking about. Now, the other is actually the human health impact. And, and what that can mean for how, how we uh, produce food. So take it away. Yeah. So I, all right, I'm going to do another CYA if you don't mind. Well, um, and Hey, I'm going to do something else too, by the way, listen, yeah. everyone, this is the world's greatest way to get a bunch of ribeyes sent to you. Okay. Just keep that. Yeah, up. All exactly. right. Go for yeah. it. <laughs> We've done a lot of that work, right? So we've been interested um a while on management its influence on nutrients um i I really think a lot about about it i i wish it was like unfortunately it's like probably 20 to 30 percent of what i do whereas the the whole other piece is that pays the bills better um so we have i've been really interested on how we finish beef and what it does to nutrients now again Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Number one, look, I don't want to pit a vegan versus a carnivore or a, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into any of that, right? I, I'm an omnivore and I'm, you know, I imagine most of y'all are too. Um, I don't, so that's number one. Uh, number two is that I don't want to pit like a commodity product of beef or eggs or poultry to a other product that has an attached attribute, grass-fed, organic, whatever. Um, I, I don't want to get down that road either, okay? Because we need everything to feed people. It's not, so, I, okay. Um, what I can share, though, is that really unique, uniquely, um, we see differences in how we raise beef, right? And, um and and so we've seen, you know, we we did our first study with sponsored by Green Acres Foundation. They're the Gambles of Procter and Gamble, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, where we actually work and sample like over a thousand beef samples and um, ran fatty acid profiles. Uh, Dr. Jen Fenton is a colleague here at MSU. We we work together, and uh, my goodness, Monty, the variation in fatty acids of those products were off the charts. So we look at the amount of different omega-3s, omega-6s, for example. We look at those ratios, saturated. And we had we had some grass-fed that was like really beautiful. Again, these were all grass-fed samples for this project, one-to-one, right? Like two-to-one. And, you know, normally we say less than three-six a three to one ratio of omega sixes to omega threes. Omega threes are purportedly those that have greater health benefits. Um, the ratio is important. The closer you are to one, there have been purported benefits for, for health and longevity. Um, we had some grass fed man that was like 25 to one, six to three, where a, 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 gra- a grain fed model, six to seven to one. Okay. So that was like this huge holy crap moment, man, where, and it wasn't just like, look, it wasn't just one. It was, there were multiple. Um, 
big guys, small guys, right? Like it wasn't just like this, oh, those big jerks are gaming the system and this, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that story at all, right? So that was something we learned that what you finish with has tremendous impacts on those ratios. We're still chasing it, man. We can't figure it out completely. Um, so there's that. The other thing is that nobody's really measured a lot of phytonutrients in beef, that there's all these polyphenols, there's all these different chlorophylls and other really cool compounds that um, we don't measure. We just look at protein and fat and energy and water and minerals and whatever. And that we, we can also show that based on the forage content of our products, uh, of the forage content, that these phytochemicals can be impacted to the meat. And we haven't gotten to the point where if you eat it, can we pick it up in a, in a blood sample, right? Um, and, and the other thing I'd also to mention is we, we do see greater concentrations of polyphenols, um, more quote-unquote balanced fatty acid profiles in our grass-fed. It doesn't mean I can't do it in a fed. It doesn't mean I can't do it. I can supplement the right types of additives to probably see a grain-fed deal look that way a lot easier with grass. And so we see a lot of differences. We see differences in uh, zinc and certain you know, uh, divalent, divalent cation minerals like copper and those things. Um, we're seeing increases in uh, TBA, which is an important fatty acid that just came out in the news this week of being anti-carcinogenic. And it's often found in meat. We see higher concentrations in certain finishing profiles there. I work a lot uh, with uh, Stefan Van Vliet, who's like the, a real big expert. He's a Fred Provenza protege, if you will. Fred's the most well-known in this space. And you know, we've been able to, to forge a relationship where we have a lot of the beef and do that work and we do the fatty acids, but we can send it out to Stefan and he can do some of the metabologenomics to look at the impacts of these micro, micro phytonutrients and other things. So there's a lot of variation out there. Um, I eat grain fed beef all the time, man. And I'll, I'll damn sure eat it over a turnip. <laughs> there you go. But what, so I mean, that was surprising, right? That was my point, is that you have mm -hmm. this huge variation where you've got some grass-fed that doesn't, like you were saying, doesn't score as good as grain-fed, and you got other that's yeah. out of this world. And do we do we really know what's driving that? Or what do you think's driving that? In Because it's not, like you said, size. Um, there's some location driving that, right? And and Forbes. Yeah. Um, what, it, what you, there, there's things out, yeah. Well, hell, I can't figure it out yet. I've done two extra trials where we fed, we fed a lot of soy hole pellets, which have high linoleic in it, which is an N6. Um, we fed uh, baleages, haleages, wasn't doing it. Uh, we just got a new trial. We're going to look at uh, like, like if distillers might be driven that deal or not. Um, what I can share, so I don't know, number one, I'm still working on it. Um, but I can share that over time, you can definitely see certain polyphenols and, and, and certain fatty acid profiles that hang right in there with 100% grass and hay, right? Like, boom, that is like, you can tell, man. And then as you start to add more, more supplements that are often approved, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you can see changes in those, those profiles. Um, you, you can and, and so there's nothing wrong with it. It's just different. Um, and so uh, 
as far as what's driving it, it's often those last 60 days of finishing, 30 to 60 days are super important in impacting those things. Um, as far as like, I mean, we've got, we can pick it up in eggs, uh, same, not, not the high, high sixes, but man, you can definitely change profiles and phytonutrients also uh, with how you raise chickens. And we, we were able to pick it up there too. Um, I think long-term there's, there'll be a willingness to, to pay for these products. That's why we want to do it, for, you know, to kind of show that. Um, so I, it, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. It doesn't piss people off near as much as the climate works. <laughs> well, you gotta, you gotta have some alternatives, right? So, <laughs> um, I have to have my happy space, man. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, yeah. Now tell me, uh, between now and, and retirement time, and I, I don't think you'll be a guy that retires well. Um, I, I think you'll be busy through retirement too. What are what are some of your yes, uh, future goals and, and and projects and uh, as, as you think about it, what do you what do you want your impact to to be when when you're when you're looking back on on your work? Um, man, that's a tough one. I, you know, you get. Um, Sometimes it's easy to get a bit discouraged, right? When you see challenges ecosystem-wise. Um, so that always kind of bogs me down. Not always, but, um, you know, I'm already prepping for the UN meetings, the COP meetings in Dubai next week, uh, because it will, it just turns into kind of like a real negative deal on on what we're doing in the meat industry. Um, but but I, alternatively, that, we know that we need animals to help feed the planet. And, and so we can do that in a way I think that is much more sustaining that can improve land in the same breath and, and, and can be, be less water intensive, all these cool things. And so I guess if I were to look back, 72 is my number. I'm going to keep working after that, but I think 72. So I got 20 years. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I want to see us be able to mo monitor quantitatively what's happening with with carbon, with water, with biodiversity at a local scale and being able to link that all the way up to a millions of acres in, in a quantifiable way that enriches local communities, that enriches and empowers rural communities because they're the lifeblood of our country. And most of the metrics of health and well-being in rural communities are going the wrong direction. And therefore, I see these opportunities that can bring more cash and more impact back into rural communities by, by working shoulder to shoulder with farmers and ranchers on adopting the things that we've been talking about. And, and then ultimately quantifying that and linking that impact based to the people that are truly doing it. And today, often you, what you'll see, man, is like, oh, well, Monty, on your farm, you sequestered a ton of carbon. Well, you may sell that corn to certain entity. And that corn says, hey, we got a ton of carbon. And that corn goes into a feed yard. Hey, we got a ton of carbon. And then the, then the animal goes to the packer. Hey, we got a ton of carbon. And then that packer sells it to an uh, uh, end user. Hey, we got a ton of carbon. And what is really one ton of carbon is now five. And that's a huge issue. 
And who got paid for that carbon and what the value of that carbon is worth is a huge issue. And, and so if we can continually work, I don't even want to get into methane and the challenges we have measuring methane, indeed. It's pitiful, the challenges. And, and that's a whole nother, other talk. But, but if we can quantify this in a real way that's transparent, that has truth to it, that isn't a check the box, map it and pay the right people to do it, I'll, I'll put the hat on the mantle and sit by the fire. There you go. That sounds like a, a great goal. Yeah. And uh, no, I uh, I really appreciate uh, all all the hard work that you've done, and and really like you were saying, reset yeah. program there at Michigan State, um, and and then being really well known in the grass fed community, and then doing the unthinkable, yeah. uh, looking at you know corn uh, finishing opportunities and how you can yeah. improve it there because you know you need to have every tool in your toolbox because uh, absolutely uh, amen one ranch do everything, and and we have to be ready yeah. for that and. There's certainly some huge opportunities, like you're saying, in in cattle production, but then also there's huge opportunities within row crop production, uh, vegetable production, all those things we can we can do better. Do right? And uh, absolutely, and, anyway, and we should do better. Yeah. Well, anything else we should have visited about while we had our time here together today? And uh, before you got to hop on, bro, a, we could have gone an airplane for, hours, a, for a long, long flight. My caffeine's just kicking in and, and, um, no, nah, we'll, we'll call her good. We can talk another time, my friend. Uh, look looking forward to it. And I'm glad we got to catch up. It's been a while. And, uh, I, yes, uh, sir. Appreciate everything that you're doing and, uh, and keep you up the good fight and keep, keep representing us farmers well. Amen, brother. Well, I'll try and, and, uh, just hope you're doing good and look like you are. So, all right. Good to see you, Jason. Thank you for sharing with everyone, and and uh, mm -hmm. uh, keep keep looking forward to that time. You can look at that hat up on the mantle and know you've done well. <laughs> All right, brother. Adios. Right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm so excited to listen to researchers who are breaking down silos. And as Jason said, it's about adopting soil health principles that are improving resilience and ecological function and that they're quantifiable. That way, we are led by those principles and driven to outcomes, not check the box actions. And as always, if you'd like to do more than check some boxes and actually implement soil health practices, well, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.